church. You can have a seat. Kids, if you've got Sunday school, uh, go ahead and be dismissed to your teachers. Uh, and I guess, first of all, I should probably introduce or reintroduce myself. Uh, I've been away for a while, like many families in our church. Uh, we've made a necessary decision for health reasons in our family to watch from home this past year. And uh, to all you online families, uh, hello out there. And uh, so my name's Mark Klein. I'm an elder here at the church. I serve alongside Steve and my fellow elders. Um, so I thought I'd better reintroduce myself since you haven't seen me in quite a while. Um, just a few quick announcements. Uh, we've got an infant baby dedication next week. So come out for that. Uh, Hetty Woolwine could use your prayers. Uh, fell and broke her ankle. Uh, please pray for her quick recovery. Uh, it's good to see Debbie Keppel back. You guys and others that I haven't seen in a long time. And you know, uh, there's nothing that beats Christian fellowship. You know, you can watch online from home. You, you can uh, serve behind the scenes. And I try to stay connected with the elders. But it's not quite the same as being here in person and seeing you all and fellowshipping together. So I'm excited about that. Uh, we can pray for Lucas and Lois Richard, our missionaries to Liberia, my sister Lois. Uh, praise God that they've been able to raise the funding for their duplex that's going up at the end of March and April. Um, they also would like to raise some additional funds to put in a water well and a solar tower and a roof extension uh, to help with the cooling and that rainforest-like climate out there in the jungles of Liberia. Um, so this morning we're going to continue in Matthew chapter 13. If you could open there with me, please. And I'm going to open in a word of prayer. Lord, this morning, as we look into your word, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us minds and hearts ready to receive and know and understand your word. Help us to understand the surface meanings, but also the deeper meanings and the nuances of your word, that it might stimulate our minds and direct our thinking towards you, and that we might live Christ-like lives in this evil world. We pray for the honor and glory of Jesus. Amen. Well, Matthew 13 is a turning point in the public ministry of Jesus. He has, up to this point, been teaching in very clear, straightforward uh, manner of teaching that everyone can understand. But we come to Matthew 13, and he's now speaking in parables. And a parable, simply said, is an earthly illustration of a heavenly or spiritual truth. It's an analogy that brings light to a spiritual truth, but they're not clear. If you just got the earthly illustration, you just heard the parable, you might not get the spiritual meaning. It would require further explanation. He didn't tell stories like parables to make things easier to understand. He made it more difficult to understand. And the, and the question we have to ask is why? And that's what the disciples asked. You see in Matthew 13, 10, which Steve has covered over the past month here in chapter 12 and 13, where the disciples come to him after hearing the story about a farmer planting seeds, and they ask, why do you speak to them in parables? And that's a good question. And he said 
To you it has been granted to understand the mysteries of the kingdom, but to them it has not been granted. And the question is why? We look back in chapter 12 at the rejection of Jesus. Chapter 12 covers a period of many, many months. And what we see is time and time again, the leaders of Israel, the Pharisees, the scribes, the leaders, they reject Jesus as their king, their Messiah. You see, John the Baptist came on the scene and he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what he meant was, the kingdom is near. It's at hand because the king is here. When the long-promised and awaited king of Israel would come, would also come the kingdom. And he was there and he offered it to them. But time and time again, the leaders of Israel rejected the king, and so they rejected the kingdom. We see they tried to pick a fight about the Sabbath day and their legalistic view of it over and over again in chapter 12 when the disciples were in the grain field picking the heads of grain, another Sabbath later on when he healed a man's withered hand, and then it all came to a climax. It came to a head in the middle of chapter 12 where we see Jesus in front of the crowd performing a powerful miracle that was indisputable where he cast a demon out of a man who was also blind and mute. No one could deny a powerful miracle had been done. And the multitudes were following him. There was this great grassroots following Jesus had. And the leaders of Israel were jealous of that. In fact, they said in the chapter there that they plotted to destroy him because they were concerned that all Israel was going to go after him. And so when he performs this indisputable miracle, they say, oh, he cast out the demon by the power of Beelzebub, by the power of Satan. And Jesus said, that sin is unpardonable. To attribute the mighty miracle, the power of God, performed in the power of the Spirit, to the devil, and, up to, and reject and reject and reject. He said, that's unpardonable. And so he's going to no longer speak in clear, open terms and sermons. He's going to speak in parables and make it confusing to the multitudes. He hardens their hearts in a way. You think back to Pharaoh in the Old Testament, and, it, and we read how Pharaoh hardened his heart. It says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And another time, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then, then we see God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And you know, both things are true. When a person hardens their heart against God so long, and we don't know how long, God only knows. But at some point, God hardens their already hardened heart. And there's no repentance. And so these Pharisees, these leaders, have rejected the king. They've rejected the kingdom. And so now he confuses the message. He, and the first uh, reason he speaks in parables is to conceal the truth, to conceal the truth from the hard-hearted like the Pharisees, and also to conceal it from the superficial followers who were following him maybe primarily because of his miracles and the great things he was doing. And it's an act of divine judgment, really, an act of judgment to speak in a confusing way to them. But it's also, when you think about it, an act of mercy. Because, you see, the more light we receive, the more truth we receive, the more accountable we are on the day of judgment to respond and receive that truth. And so, in a way, he's holding that back from them as an act of mercy from them uh, in the day of judgment. But he also spoke in parables, as we talked about last week, to reveal the truth to the sincere seekers, to the genuine followers who would follow up with him and probe and try to seek the meaning of the parables. And that's what the disciples do. And then he also spoke in parables, thirdly, to communicate a new truth. 
What we see in chapter 13 with the start of him speaking in parables is him revealing a new truth that hadn't been revealed before. He calls it the mysteries of the kingdom. It was something that couldn't be previously known and is now being opened up and revealed to those who would seek it. And that is that although they've rejected him as king and rejected the earthly kingdom, there's now going to be a spiritual aspect to the kingdom where all who receive Jesus as the Son of God have the right to become children of God, to become part of the kingdom of God in a spiritual way, in a spiritual aspect. And God is still going to come. Jesus is going to come one day and set up his earthly kingdom, but there would be this gap now, this interim period, a parenthesis, if you will, between his first coming to be the Savior and the second coming to come and reign on the earth in power and glory. This is the church age that we are in now. This is the spiritual aspect to his kingdom where he's calling everyone everywhere to repent, to turn from their sin, to turn towards God and receive the gift of eternal life and become part of the kingdom. That's a mystery that the Old Testament prophets couldn't see before. They, they would remember in Isaiah where it says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the next verse says, upon his shoulders will be the government. And so they, their expectation was that when the king would come, when the son was born, there would also be a government, a kingdom. And so this was a mystery, that there was going to be a gap, and that would wait for the future. But you know, this didn't take God by surprise. This rejection of him as their king wasn't a surprise to him. This postponement of the kingdom was not a surprise or plan B. God doesn't have a plan B. This was all plan A from the beginning. He knew they would reject him. He knew he would go to the cross. He knew they were... He would postpone the earthly kingdom until a future time. That was plan A. And I think about this pandemic that we're in. And, you know, we haven't been able to freely fellowship like we would like and serve in ministries together like we would like. I miss that. I miss coming here on Wednesday night and seeing 100 kids and ministering the gospel to them. I miss that. But you know what? This whole time has been plan A. God is always operating on plan A. He is always building his kingdom even in this time. His work is not on pause. It's not on hold until the pandemic is over. Missionaries around the world are still ministering the gospel. We're still ministering the gospel. You know, I think this past year, some of the opportunities that God's brought our family that we might not have had otherwise uh, had we been so fully busy and engaged with the normal activities that we're in. Uh, Lord directed Jesslyn and I to jump into foster care this last year and uh, we took in a little baby girl at the end of August. We've had her the last six months. It's been uh, a wonderful experience. She just went home to her mother this last week so we're sad about that. But we're very thankful and grateful for the time that we had with her and for the Lord allowing us some extra time to invest in her life during this pandemic. And I also think of the opportunity the Lord brought our family to have some open-air backyard gospel ministry with kids on our street. Well, I wasn't able to come here and be with 100 kids at Awana, but I was able to, in my backyard, through connections my kids had with some sibling sets on our street, to have them in our backyard and have some gospel ministry to six to eight kids. I'll take that, you know? That's just wonderful how the way the Lord works and Sometimes we have to just be open and willing to take some steps in faith and be open to try something new. How might the Lord be using you, calling you to be part of his plan A during this pandemic?
God knows no plan B. He's building this kingdom. And we come to this parable of the sower in Matthew 13. It's a very important parable in the parallel account in Mark chapter 4. He tells his disciples, if you don't understand this parable, how will you understand all the parables? So we see that this parable has great significance because it's going to help us unlock the meanings to the rest of the parables he's going to cover. And to set the scene, we see at the beginning of chapter 13 that on that same day, all those climatic events happened with casting out the demon and being rejected, the unpardonable sin, all that. On the same day, he went out of the house, it says in verse 1, and sat by the sea, and the great multitudes were gathered together to him so that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. And he's got kind of a natural amphitheater-like setting with the hills behind them, and as he's on the boat, everybody can see him, and he's projecting his voice, and they can hear him. And he starts telling them this story, this earthly illustration, this parable about a farmer planting his seeds. You know, Iowa farmers today have great technology at their hands. They've got all these great machines. One of my good friends in college was the son of Kinzenbach out in Williamsburg, you know, the Kinsey planter that's up there in the air. And I went to school with him, got to visit the home site there which was pretty fun. And they've got planters. We've got, they've got technology. They've got computerized everything. And the technology for planting today is awesome. But, you know, you go back into the first century farming and planting, and uh, they didn't have even some, a simple hand spreader of grass seed like this, you know. They couldn't go around and patch up the bare spots in their yard, just kind of spreading their seeds around. And um, I'm going to try to make a mess up here if I can. No, they didn't even have something like that. And I'm not even very good at that, really, because you have to water that, those spots like three times a day or else it doesn't grow, and I don't, I'm not good enough at that. No, they would just take a handful of seed out of a sack, you know, and just kind of broadcast it out. They'd just broadcast it out. And it would land on four types of soil. Jesus talks about the four types of soil that seed would land on. And let's pick it up here in verse 3. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth. And they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched. Because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So the first type of soil that the seed might land on was called the wayside soil. And back in those first century farms, they had beaten paths around their farms and through the farms that people could travel through, and they would be hard-packed and beaten down and sun-baked. And if a seed landed on that wayside soil, it couldn't penetrate it. And soon after, the birds would come and devour up any of those seeds. My uh, hobby over the past four and a half, five months or so has been backyard birding. Uh, when cycling season ended, I needed something else. And, and so I've, I've uh, just really enjoyed putting out different kinds of seed and seeing the different kind of birds. And I was kind of picturing the birds that might have come and devoured the seeds on the wayside soil. And, you know, there's some, go back to the slide, there's, there's some desirable birds you want, you know, when you're birding. Like the woodpeckers, they're fun unless they drill holes on your house right behind your head when you're trying to wake up in the morning or sleep in in the morning. 
Um, I don't have a picture of my hole. So you've got colorful birds, blue jays, cardinals, goldfinches that don't look so gold in the wintertime. They're the kind of birds you like to have. But this next bird here uh, that I got a picture of in the tree is the kind of bird I think of when I think of the birds coming and devouring the seed off the wayside path, this nasty, black, ominous-looking crow against the winter sky who we'll see later on is a picture of Satan and his work, actually. So kind of fitting that maybe a crow is what Jesus has in mind here. I don't know. And then there would be the stony soil. The stony soil. So the farmers would try to get all the rocks out of their field ahead of time as much as they could, right? But sometimes in that area of the world, there would run a layer of limestone rock just below plowing depth, and, and it would just leave a shallow bit of soil. Not enough, really, to grow adequate root structure and access the water supply. And they would spring up right away because of that lack of depth and look really leafy. And somebody might think, oh, that's exciting. That's a good plant. But the sun would scorch it and it would wither away. And to the observant farmer, that kind of growth would actually have been kind of concerning instead of the slow, steady growth of a healthy, normal plant. And my... Uh, Old neighbor, my last house, uh, had some shallow soil in his gutter. And this isn't a picture of his gutter, but it looked a lot like this one, where, you know, he never cleaned it. He was a young single guy. He never did any yard work, let trees grow all over his front yard, and his gutters fill of soil, and these plants would kind of shoot up, but they wouldn't last long. They wouldn't actually produce full-size plants and fruit. And when we were trying to sell our house at one point, I had to go up to his door because we were going to have an open house. And I said, hey, uh, I'm going to have an open house. Can you uh, do something? He says, about the front yard? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Take care of that, please. And he cut everything down and left it there, so it was kind of unsightly still. But uh, in any case, shallow soil. They would spring up, but they wouldn't produce. They wouldn't be mature. And then there was the thorny soil. You know, inevitably, the farmer couldn't get every root out of the weeds you know, and weeds always seem to grow the fastest and strongest, don't they? And if you don't take care of them, well, we've got ways of doing that well today, but back then it would have been harder. And they grow up with the plants, and they choke out the water supply, and they block the sunlight, and they just choke out the life out of the good, healthy plant. And then there's the good soil. In the good soil, the farmer could invest a denarii, buy some seeds, and then when he cashed in on his harvest, he could expect an average return of somewhere around seven and a half times. Uh, seven and a half. And a ten, a ten time return would have been pretty, really good. What we see here is Jesus talking about extraordinary harvests of 30 times, 60 times, 100 times. Percentage-wise, that would be 3,000%, 6,000%, and 10,000%. That's incredible harvest, incredible yields on return. If you're a businessman, that kind of return on investment would be awesome. And that's what he's talking about here. And then he just ends the story saying, he who has ears, let him hear. And he doesn't offer an explanation to the crowd. And the hard-hearted and the superficial just kind of left confused about what that meant. Oh, that's a nice agricultural story. Don't know what it means. But then his disciples follow up with him and he explained why he was speaking in parables. And then he opens it up and unlocks the meaning to them because he's granted it to them. And we pick this up in verse 18 the spiritual explanation of this parable of the farmer. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, 
Then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but only endures, endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. So we see the sower here, the farmer. And the sower is really Jesus taking the word of the kingdom out to the people. We see later in the chapter in a, in a later parable that the, calls the sower the, the son of man who sows the good seed. Jesus is the sower. He's the planter. He's the farmer. But also, you know, everyone who is sowing the seed of the kingdom, who is sharing the gospel of Christ, is a sower along with Christ. We are the sower too, if we're in Christ. And he talks about a seed that's being planted, and the seed is called the word of the kingdom, the word of the kingdom. The sower is sowing the word, the word of the kingdom. In Hebrews 4.12 read about the word of God being living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. And it says that it's a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. These four soils here represent four different types of hearts, the receptivity of the heart and the response of the heart of a person. And in this first soil, the wayside, that hard-packed, baked-down, impenetrable soil is to represent hard-hearted believers. People like the Pharisees who hear the message and reject the message, reject the king. Verse 19 says, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. John MacArthur says, They witnessed his miracles firsthand, knew the truth of his claims, and still blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And Satan has a role in this. And Satan is pictured as the birds, maybe like that ominous crow in the branches there, who comes and snatches away the seed from a person's heart. When I was in college on a missions trip to Emmanuel Mission in northeast Arizona on the Navajo Reservation, I had the privilege for the first time of leading uh, some children in a prayer to receive Christ, to be saved. And that was the first time in my life I had experienced that, and it was wonderful. Um, And then I remember riding in a truck with one of the workers there shortly after, Jerry Neininger, and he said, now we need to pray that Satan wouldn't snatch the seed away and that they would have opportunities for growth. That was the first time I'd ever thought about praying like that. And that's a good thing to pray, isn't it? When the gospel message goes forth, we should pray that Satan wouldn't snatch the seed away and that they would have opportunity for growth. How does Satan snatch away the word? We're told not to be ignorant of his devices, 2 Corinthians 2.11. So how does he do that? First of all, he uses deceit. He is a liar and the father of lies, John 8.44. He doesn't come openly and announce, I'm here. No, he comes subtly and deceptively. In 2 Corinthians 11, it says he transforms himself and his servants as angels of light and ministers of righteousness. So he comes and he appears like a 
a righteous minister, an angel of light. It's deceptive. And he confuses people through false teaching and worldly philosophies and ideas. In 2 Peter 2, we read about these false teachers who come in secretly denying the Savior that supposedly they claimed bought them. And, you know, anybody who adds anything to the gospel of Christ does that. You know, when the Mormons add works to the gospel, when other cults and religions add other things, anything really, that to the message that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, through Jesus Christ alone, you add anything to that message and you've polluted the true, pure message of the gospel. And, these, and false teachers will come in and do that. And they'll, other teachings and philosophies and universities will promote ideas that are so contrary to Christ and that snatches away the seed from a person's mind. You know, Satan knows that men love darkness rather than light, as it says in John 3, 19, and he takes advantage of that. He diverts minds from the truth. He deceives, he confuses, he diverts. He does what he can to snatch the seed from a person. You know, maybe many people here today uh, in the world and maybe someone listening today might be like this hard-hearted person, you know, who knows the stories of creation, who knows the story of the gospel of Christ, and yet for some reason they, they reject that. They're hard-hearted towards God. They uh, would prefer some other kind of lifestyle or philosophy. Maybe someone is just plain self-sufficient and doesn't believe they need anything else beyond themselves. And they become hard-hearted towards God. William MacDonald in his commentary writes, they hear the gospel but do not understand it. Not because they can't, but because they won't. The birds are a picture of Satan, he says. He snatches away the seed from the hearts of these hearers. He cooperates with them in their self-chosen barrenness. It's like the people who just say, thanks God, but no thanks. But whatever the exact reason is for the rejection of God, hard-hearted hearers, their, their hearts are just not ready to hear, to see, to understand, and believe at this time. But you know, there's always hope for even the hardest of hearts. You look at the Apostle Paul and his life as a persecutor of the church before the Lord shined the light and changed him and became the greatest missionary ever. I think to the privilege I had last fall of dropping in on a good friend's baptism. I'd worked with this guy, a close friend of mine, for uh, over seven years. And I remember praying for him on a number of occasions, driving into work, and to hear in his testimony that for many years, he said, I was not ready to hear it. I wasn't ready. I, w I wouldn't have received it. But after he came to the end of himself and everything else he tried to fill his life with, he, he Lord had kind of plowed that hard-hearted soil in his heart and softened it. And he was receptive and he received it and believed in it. And to see his baptism was a wonderful experience for me. You know, we should keep praying for the hardest of hearts. Never give up. It's never too late until it's too late, you know? And so we keep praying. We keep trusting in God. We don't know what kind of work he's doing behind the scenes in that person's heart. Softening it, plowing it, preparing it to receive the word. Well, moving on, we come across the next two types of soils which represent superficial, quote, Christians in the church. And he 
And verse 20 says, He who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. This is a person who hears the gospel and has an immediate response that we would love to see all the time. They received it with joy. They're excited. They're excited about the things of God. They do everything that kind of looks like a Christian. And uh, I, I think back to a time in my senior year of high school where God used a person like this to really encourage me in my faith. Uh, a guy who had gotten saved, and he just seemed so on fire for the Lord, so excited in his worship, so excited in his daily life about the word and following God, and that was so encouraging to me. made a big impact on me. But a few years later, and some conversations with some mutual friends, I find out he's no longer walking with the Lord. And I thought, that, that can't be the same person that I knew. What happened? And I wrote him a letter, and I followed up with a phone call, and I, I asked him then. I said, hey, I said, I hear this stuff. I said, what happened? What happened? And then, sadly, kind of in a somewhat apathetic tone of voice, he said, I don't know. I don't know. He was no longer walking with the Lord. This was a a shallow soil person who received it with joy, great joy, but then fell away. You know, one sign of a true believer is that you continue on in the faith. In John 8, 31, Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. If you abide, if you remain, if you continue on in the faith, you are my disciples indeed. That's a sign of a believer. In John 2, John talks about people who went out from us but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. And so when we see great excitement, but then falling away, that's a sign of the shallow soil. Someone who didn't have genuine true faith, didn't have a root in their heart. You know, this is easier to be a shallow soil Christian in America than other places in the world. You look in countries like Myanmar, where many of our um, Karen friends come from on our, to our Awana ministry on Wednesday nights, and they're persecuted for their faith. Uh, you, if you read the Voice of the Martyrs magazine last year, there was an article about a man who persecuted um, the Christians there in Myanmar, but then he became saved and became the persecuted. He became persecuted after being one of the lead persecutors. You look in places like Nigeria, where in the northern part of Nigeria, Boko Haram is just burning Christians out of their homes and shooting them. You look in places like China, where they're arresting and imprisoning Christians for their faith. Persecution has a way of purifying the church and weeding out the superficial believers. We don't experience that so much here. It's easier to be a superficial Christian here in America. But it's hard to keep on a show. It's hard to keep on a pretense if it isn't real. Like my friend, I don't know, maybe he was excited about it. Maybe he felt like there was a place of belonging, some kind of purpose, something he was missing. But he didn't really truly commit himself to Christ. And what makes the difference is... Maybe in a way, uh, the way we preach the gospel, do we have shallow evangelism, you know? Do we just tell someone, oh, just raise your hand or just come to the front, just pray a prayer and you're saved? Or do we say, turn from your sin, deny yourself and take up your cross, devote yourself to godliness, follow Christ no matter what happens, even in persecution? I think if we had a little bit more of that in our preaching, it could weed out some of the shallow preaching, but regardless of even if they received the true gospel message, these are people who heard it but never really deep down committed themselves to following Christ and they fall away. 
We also see a soil here called the thorny soil. He who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. This is the worldly Christian. Someone who hears the gospel and maybe has a positive response to it initially. But over time what we see is no real interest in the things of God, in the ministries of the church and what he's doing. Instead, all these other priorities in life dominate their thinking, their desires, their, what they get excited about, their passions, what they pursue in life are things of the world. There's a lot of things in this world to be preoccupied by, isn't there? I've heard it said that you really maybe only do well at your top three priorities in life. Okay, well, if that's, uh, if that's your work and your career, good thing in of itself. And if that's your kids' activities, and if that's your uh, fill-in-the-blank, fantasy basketball, gardening, whatever you might have, if those are your top priorities, where's Christ? Where's God in your life? Is he a top priority, or is he even a priority at all? You know, and sadly, these kind of people probably don't even realize it's happened. You know, they, if they were to truly reflect and look back, they might see and think back, oh, maybe there was that time when I was a teenager in my 20s where I was kind of interested a little bit, excited a little bit, but if they were honest with themselves, they have no real interest now. And the things of this world have crowded out their spiritual life. It has choked out their spiritual life. You know, that could even be true for believers. The same things that keep some people away from the faith like that in this life could also be stumbling blocks for us as believers. You know, when we let other things and other priorities take precedence over our spiritual life. When's the last time you read the Word? When's the last time you were excited to read the Word and to pray and practice other spiritual disciplines? We all need to have a, a heart check there. You know, or do we have spiritual life or don't we? In 1 John 2, 15, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Did you hear that? The world is passing away. Why would we let other priorities dominate our lives and fill our minds and all our planning and excitement be about those things rather than the thing that will abide forever which is our life in Christ and so this is a wake up call to those who may be not so excited not so interested in spiritual things but so focused and excited on everything else in the world John MacArthur says we are fallen guilty sinners with shallow weedy rebellious hearts left to ourselves we would just grow harder every exposure to the light would bake the hardness in even more until we became as impervious to god's word as a concrete walkway is to grass seed he says only god himself can plow and prepare a heart to receive the word he does it through the regenerating and sanctifying work of his holy spirit who convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment we need to pray that God would plow hearts and prepare hearts to receive the gospel message. There's a lot of hard hearts out there. There's a lot of shallow hearts. There's a lot of superficial Christianity out there. And we need to pray that God would stir up people to receive the good word. Well, we come to, towards the end of the passage here. And we see that 
although there's these disappointing responses to the gospel message, the word of the kingdom, there's also a promise that seed will fall on good soil. Verse 23, but he who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30. You know, the truth is, is that God is saving people from their sins and he's building his kingdom. We're to expect that there will be those who reject it. We're to expect that there will be those who receive it with joy but then fall away or some that get choked out by their worldliness. But we're also to expect that the gospel will find receptive hearts, people who will hear and see and know and understand and believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the Savior to take away their sins. And they will bear fruit. That's the sign of a true believer, someone who bears fruit, he says, and continues in the faith and doesn't fall away. It's the Lord's desire that we bear much fruit, much fruit. John 15, 8, he says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so that you will be my disciples. Ephesians 2.10 says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's God's desire that we manifest in our lives good works and service for him and bear fruit. And what does that fruit look like? You see in the New Testament, a lot of different ways the fruit of a Christian life is described. And sometimes it's a, a person coming to Christ. Sometimes it's the fruit of our lips. But what I think really defines a Christian and the fruitfulness they can bear is their character. The Christian character God is forming in their lives. It's called the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, where God is forming in us qualities and characteristics like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. These are the qualities God is forming us in us as we yield ourselves, as we submit ourselves to following him and his lordship. And then there's varying degrees of fruitfulness, just like the farmer who his return on investment sometimes produced a harvest of 30 and 60 and 100 fold. What makes the difference in our lives of how fruitful we are as believers? On one hand, like I said, the worldliness and cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, all those things that we talked about, those are some things that can snare us as believers and keep us back from being as fruitful as we could be, as the Lord desires us to be. In Titus 2, listen to this, and I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation for this one. Titus 2.11, And we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will be revealed. We're to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We're to live in this evil world with wisdom and righteousness and devotion to God. Does that describe our heart this morning? Are we living in a way with devotion to God? We'll be more fruitful if we do. And just like there's varying degrees of punishment for unbelievers, 
You know, some like the Pharisees who had the greatest, fullest possible revelation of God in person with Jesus there before them and still rejected it. That was unpardonable. They'll have a greater degree of punishment in hell than those who had never heard the gospel in the world. And so, too, with believers, those who submit themselves and devote themselves to godliness and to the fellowship and service in the church and to winning the lost, those people will receive greater reward one day. In the parable of the Minas in Luke 19, Jesus said, and he said to him, one, one of his servants, well done, good servant, because you were faithful and very little, have authority over ten cities. And then to another, the second one came and he said, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, you also be over five cities. So you can see some varying degrees of reward based on faithful Christian living and service in this life. And then there was a man who hid it and didn't do anything with it. And he didn't get a reward. So I just want to close this morning with a few final appeals to the hard-hearted person who's rejecting the gospel. I would say, consider again. Consider again the claims of the Bible that there is one true God who created everything, who, whose God's existence is evident in nature. And he sent his only son, Jesus, to die on the cross to pay the penalty you deserve to pay for your sins. Allow his spirit to break up that hard ground. Allow his spirit to soften your heart and consider again the need to follow God. Receive it. To everyone who professes to be a Christian, my appeal is do some soul searching. Do some soul searching. Am I truly committed to following Christ? Do I truly desire to live for him? Please him? Serve him with my life? Is my walk with God my top priority in life? Is it a priority at all? And if I were to be persecuted for my faith, truly persecuted like many believers around the world, if that came here to America, would, would my faith hold true? Would I continue in the faith or would I fall away? Allow God to break up any rocky resistance in your life. If there's been some worldliness, some other priorities in life that have been choking out your spiritual life, confess that to God and ask him to break up that, those competing priorities. Have no other gods besides me, he says. Dave Glock, one of my uh, professors in Emmaus, now with the Lord, Emmaus Bible College, he, he would sometimes say in his classes in heaven, we will be surprised by some of the people we see there. We will be surprised by some of the people we don't see there. But most of all, we'll be glad that we're there. There's some truth to that, isn't there? devote ourselves to God. Let's pursue the things of heaven and the kingdom. Let's sow the seed of the gospel. Let's join Jesus as the great sower, the farmer, and plant the seed everywhere. Because we know and we are to expect that it's going to fall on hard ground, on shallow ground, on, on thorny ground. But we also know, and there's a promise, that his word's not going to return void. He's going to accomplish everything he wants to through the preaching of his word and that includes people responding and receiving the gospel of the kingdom. To believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came and paid the debt we cannot pay. That we deserved to be punished for our sin. And left to ourselves, like John MacArthur said, we would just grow more hard-hearted. But praise God that he's plowing the field. He's the farmer plowing the field and preparing hearts to receive the gospel message. 
You know, if I never put any seed out in my backyard for my birds, my backyard birds, they would never come. If I put seed out occasionally, I might occasionally see some birds I like to see. But if I put seeds out regularly, every day even, which I do, then they might not come every day. My favorite birds not, might not make that stop every day, and, uh, but they will come regularly. And so too with the gospel. We sow the seed. We don't know what God's going to do in that person's heart and life, but we sow it trusting in him and his sovereignty to do his work to prepare that heart and save that soul. And so may we do that. May we be part of this parable of the sower and sow the seed with the great sower. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage, this parable, and for unlocking its meaning to our hearts. And thank you for explaining it to us so that we might have the benefit and blessing of hearing this message that you are building your kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, and you're calling men everywhere to repent. And Lord, help us to be stirred up in our minds and hearts not to be worldly, to get rid of those competing loyalties, and have our top priority be you, to devote ourselves to godliness. And Lord, devote ourselves to being part of your kingdom work, to spread the gospel everywhere, knowing that you have promised that you will accomplish all you desire with your word, which is to save souls until that day comes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Rejoice, O child.